Welcome to Smart Talk. I'm Scott Lamar. Today's program is part of the top stories of 2016 on Smart Talk series. Today's program focuses on tensions between police departments and the African-American community. The show was broadcast originally in July, within a week of two black men being shot by police. In another incident, five police officers were ambushed and killed in Dallas. Welcome to Smart Talk. I'm Scott Lamar. Last week will go down as maybe one of the most horrific in modern American history. Two African-American men were shot and killed by police in Louisiana and Minnesota. Those incidents sparked a familiar response across the country, protest and demonstrations. They were peaceful, but then came Thursday night and the sniper assassination of five police officers and the wounding of seven others in Dallas. A sadness took over the nation, and as many, as many Americans ask, what is happening? Why are we seemingly so divided? What can be done to mend the mistrust between blacks and the police, and most importantly, stop the violence? Today we present a special smart talk that ponders those very questions. And we've assembled a panel of uh, five people here this morning. And so rather than introduce everyone individually, what I'm going to do is ask all of our panelists to just provide some thoughts on the events of last week and go even beyond that if you would like. Our first guest today is Ophelia Chambliss, who is the first vice president of the York Area NAACP. Ms. Chambliss? Yeah, good morning, and thank you for having me on. Um, the issue with the black community and the police department, this is nothing new. Uh, we've all known about this. I think what's new for us is the cameras, that people can also see this. Um, the other issue is the notion of this open carry, and it seems to be having different rules for different uh, populations. And the situation in Dallas, completely separate event um, from the Black Lives Matter movement because the black community really wants to see things get better. Mm-hmm. Also joining us is Dr. Jonathan Lee, an assistant professor of criminal justice at Penn State Harrisburg. Dr. Lee? Thank you for having me. Yeah, I think uh, uh, what's really important you know, as a nation, we need to, uh, uh, before we jump into a con- conclusion, we need to uh, investigate further into what really happened uh, across all these you know, three incidents. And then uh, at the same time, it's time for us to uh, you know, develop constructive conversation about the police and uh, our public relations. When you say what really happened, do you mean just in these incidents or even the ones in the past? I'm specifically talking about these incidents. I think we have limited information at this point. I think we need to know what really happened prior to shootings of all these incidents. Also joining us is uh, Rob Martin, who is the Director of Public Safety for Susquehanna Township in Dauphin County. Chief Martin? Yes, thank you uh, for the opportunity to be here this morning. Uh, well, first of all, from my department, our thoughts and prayers go out to the, the families of the five officers killed in the line of duty. And, and for me personally, my thoughts and prayers go out to uh, all those uh, families who've, who've lost loved ones last week. And uh, I personally and professionally don't think that we're, we're as divided as, as some of the rhetoric, uh, perhaps, in the media. And, and I would uh, agree with uh, President Obama's last statement that reflects that. And uh, uh, I, I think us being here together this morning uh, and continuing to talk and uh, learn and understand from each other is where we go right now and where we move forward to. 
Also joining us is Reverend Nathaniel Gadsden, uh, Community Impact Manager for the United Way of the Capital Region, and Reverend Gadsden, that's just one of many titles for you over the years, mm-hmm. but uh, we'll, we'll stick with that one for the purposes of today's program. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree with uh, what Chief Martin just said in terms of uh, sending out our prayers to uh, all those who have lost uh, loved ones, uh, but I am uh, here also to tell you that I'm uh, very concerned about this uh, continuing uh, problem of uh, trying to box this thing into, and I heard you use the word context, um, we're a little bit sick and tired of context. I think we know what's going on and we need to fix it. And until we get really uh, excited and angry about what's happening uh, and, and tell the truth about what sin really is, uh, this thing's gonna continue to go on and on. I'm 65, almost 66 years old. This has been the story for all of my life. And I think we need to uh, get down to the business of telling the truth about what's happening and stop trying to sweep it up under the rug. Um, I've always said I'm a huge, huge supporter of police. I'm also a huge supporter of Black Lives Matter. And I think that uh, I'm a bigger supporter of the truth. And we need to start getting to the truth. Mm-hmm. Also joining us is Dr. Rita Shaw, Assistant Professor of Sociology at Elizabethtown College. Dr. Shaw. Thank you for having me. So the one thing I wanted to point out is, as of this morning, we have now had 571, I believe it is, killings at the hands of police officers. Some justified, some not. You mean during 2016? During 2016. That's simply the first half and a little bit more of this year. So, and within those numbers, you are talking about killings at the hand of police that are disproportionately impacting the African-American community. So while we do need to understand what happened in these two particular cases, we also need to understand this is not an isolated incident. This is happening over and over and over again. But what's interesting is that data comes from The Guardian, a UK-based journalist organization. We do not have any official data, local, state, or national in the U.S. that keeps count of this. We can't acknowledge a problem if we don't have the numbers. Washington Post does keep uh, track of it as well. Now, I don't know whether they use The Guardian as their source for that, but I know The Washington Post Mm -hmm. has done that. And I think it also is important to point out that when we're talking about context, that, as you said, some justified and maybe some not. Uh, All right, so let's get into our conversation then about why this is happening. Uh, Reverend Gaston, I'm curious, when you say that uh, this is nothing new and Mm -hmm. uh, you uh, put some emphasis on my word, context, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. what's happening? Why is it happening? It's happening because uh, there's this huge denial uh, that, um, you know, what we're seeing, we're really not seeing. Uh, the anger in the black community and for myself is uh, palpable because we are sick and tired of seeing people gunned down, choked out, or whatever the circumstances might be. And then we're told, well, you know, listen, we're taking lives. People are dying, and and people are not being held accountable. Folks are not angry when a criminal commits a crime and the police officers do their job. That's what they're there for, and police officers do their job. They protect and they serve us. When police officers, like any other professional, become unprofessional in their conduct and they step out of line and they do things that clearly they need to be punished for, they need to be punished for it. And we need to stop this whole rallying around and the blue wall and all that other kind of nonsense. And we need to start doing what should be done in every profession. I'm a professional, everybody sitting at this table is professional. If we step out of line, we should be disciplined for it. And that's the bottom line. For me, we have simply not allowed justice to be held, justice to be served when it comes down to the people in blue. And black people are sick and tired of it. We've seen it on TV. We've seen it. And then there's always this context. There's always this playing out. 
You do not have to take that man's life. How do we know that? I just watched on Facebook just the other day. It was so interesting to me. They showed all these incidents of people being arrested and people resisting arrests, you know, some of them with guns. The guy had his hand on the gun. He was talking to the police. They somehow figured out a way to arrest that guy and not kill him. That doesn't happen to people of color too often. And so we get sick and tired of saying, you didn't have to do that. Oh, well, you know, you had to do something. He made this move. I just participated in a conversation, which is really good. And they're coming up with this brochure to say what you should do, talking to the average citizen, especially black folks is what they're doing. Uh, when you're stopped and this is what you should do and all that kind of stuff, I said, that's cool. Now we need the brochure to say, and officer, this is what you should do to keep your job. Okay. I, well, let's bring Chief Martin mm-hmm. into uh, this conversation. Chief, mm-hmm. you've been around for a long time at Susquehanna Township. Yes. Uh, how do you respond to what uh, Reverend Gaston just said? Well, uh, I'm going to uh, first echo uh, Dr. Lee that it's, it's very important that uh, in all of these incidents that law enforcement and everyone else doesn't rush to, rush to judgment, let the incident be investigated, and you know, we see what the outcome is. Now, having said that, uh, because we've seen in the past some things that were rushed to judgment, and uh, things were uh, essentially asserted towards law enforcement that didn't turn out to be true. Now, you know, law enforcement's always been a very tough occupation, and it's tougher now than it's ever been. And there are inherent dangers uh, for all officers across this nation. Having said that, I think that we've come as a profession very far. I started in 1984. And when I look at my profession from 1984 to 2016, We've come a long way in things like community policing, uh, less lethal weapon systems in terms of trying to de-escalate situations. Do we have a ways to go? Do we have further to go? There's no question. And, uh, you know, I I think really if you step back and look at American law enforcement over the past 50 to 60 years, we have evolved to the changing needs, desires, and demands of, of those we serve. But, Chief, it's still happening, though. Mm-hmm. I understand. But, but, but again, we're sitting here today because some tragic events happened last week. Five officers were, without question, in my opinion, assassinated. That's what they were. They were targeted and assassinated. There were two incidents where uh, African-American men lost their lives in police incidents. Here's what we don't know. We don't know all the circumstances relating to that use of deadly force, which is in, in my uh, profession is what it's, it's defined as a use of deadly force. So until those facts come out on those two incidents, it would be highly inappropriate for me as a professional law enforcement officer uh, with over 30 years experience to comment or to judge it. Uh, so, I mean, that's my response. But globally, globally, I think what we're really talking about as we move forward as a nation is, and, and I honestly think that we're not as divided as, as a lot of the rhetoric is. I really don't believe that. Is it this, that the notion in the United States of America is that everyone has value. That, that's the underpinning of our country, in my opinion, that everyone has value. And I think, uh, you know, one of the things that, that happened this morning, I sat in on our roll call, and the sergeant of the platoon for, for day shift said, listen, you know, one of the things we need to take from this is slow down at times, step back. So I think from a law enforcement perspective, what you're going to see is a change in training and a change in approach in certain events. Mm-hmm. Ophelia Chambliss? 
Um, no one has ever questioned whether or not everyone has value. Um, you mentioned that the police department is evolving and, you know, there is this, this issue of deadly force. Uh, within the black community, we have known for many, many years, uh, you get in an encounter with the police. It may not be deadly force, but you're going to get hurt. You're going to get beat up. You might get dragged. You might get beat up, left in an alley somewhere. So these incidents have been happening a long time. What has also increased is the deadly force. It's like, well, I'm not even going to fight you, beat you up, chase you. I'm just going to shoot you. So it, it, there is an evolving, and it has become far more deadly. And so it, it's, it's the historic part of it that this has been happening a long time, but now that we all have this gun mentality, we've all become very militarized, especially within the police department, that, you know, the black community is being treated like an enemy combatant that we're, you know, required to put down at all risks because we have to have that upper hand. That's one of my biggest concerns. Well, let me just add here, too, and I don't want to change the direction of the conversation, just putting this out there, that the Dallas Police Department in particular was pointed to as a model of community policing, a good relationship between the community and uh, the, the, the police department. In fact, one of the things that was pointed out Thursday night, Friday morning, is that uh, the police officers were not wearing riot gear. They were in their regular uniforms, which has been one of the big criticisms and something you just touched on. Um, and still, this is a community that apparently other police departments could emulate, and it, it, it happened there. Right. So, and, and I think the Dallas situation, that sniper was a completely different right. issue, separate from the Black Lives Matter issue. That gentleman was on a mission. He was there for a purpose. We don't know what his story was, whether there was a mental illness issue or a shooter issue, like is very often referred to when um, a white shooter goes out. So this is a separate issue from the Black Lives Matter. So this guy's agenda and, and I, my sympathies go to the families of those police officers, and what happened there was very wrong. But that's a separate issue. But how is it a separate issue? I understand what you're saying, but many people will look at it and say, this occurred because the shooter said that he was targeting whites, white police officers in particular, uh, and he was upset by what had happened with the two previous shootings, so that you know, even though it mean, it was not prompted by Black Lives Matter, it was prompted by racial mistrust. He had an agenda. He was on a mission. He had, whether there's some other underlying issue that said to him, here's an opportunity for me to go out and do something and go out and whether he's terribly unhappy, whatever the situation was. But it was not part of that movement. It was not because of some particular police-involved incident. He was trying to just make a point. And, and let's be clear, there's been some reporting this morning that they found journals that he had written that has shown that this is not just a recent feeling that he's That's had, right. that it's something he's been planning for a while. Mm -hmm. And if you look at Black Lives Matter activists and protests, they have all condemned this action. Black Lives Matter movement does not want to get rid of police. They are very clearly trying to say, look, just like every other organization, this one has problems, so let's address it. And here are some of our views based on the literature, based on personal interactions of how we can make things better. They're not saying let's get rid of the police. This guy very definitely was. And so to 
to say that they are similar is a disservice of the Black Lives Matter mm-hmm. movement. We just had a white guy, I forget his name in all the circumstances. Remember, he shot and killed some police officers and mm-hmm. ran and was in the woods for like, what, two or three months. They finally ran him down. But he yeah, was just Northeastern one. Pennsylvania. Yeah, mm-hmm. Northeastern. Now, that just happened, right? So that's happened many times. We've had, uh, you know, Waco and so many other things. People have been against the police for all their various different ways. But these are oftentimes are lone wolves. Now, sometimes you have these uh, organized, you know, groups like you did in Waco and others. But most times it's just somebody who goes off mm-hmm. and decide that I don't like what I'm hearing. I'm sitting there watching the news 24 hours a day. I go crazy. I go out and get a gun. He's not representing anybody. And the black but, community was against him. But, right. but again, the, the difference is, is that this guy in particular said he targeted white police officers. Yeah, because he wanted to. That's yeah. what he wanted right. to do. And there's some white police officers who particularly said, I targeted the black people. I just don't like them. And we know that, too. Chief could probably tell you about some guys he's run across that have been some guys that they've questioned. And, and we just had a guy ar- ar- arrested and thrown off of a force because they found pictures of him in South Carolina, I think it was. He was in the KKK rallies hollering about killing black people. That just happened. You know, that's all over Facebook and everything else. He was a police officer for years. And here he was, an active member of the KKK. Yeah, how can you make this stuff up? You don't. So it happens on all sides. We can't, these lone wolves and people who just simply go out and they're, they're uh, taking morality in their own hands and all this kind of stuff. How do you account for that? I don't know. But that's, that's what we have to deal with. Chief Martin? Mm-hmm. I want to respond to a couple of things here. First of all, uh, certainly, as a, as, a, as a chief of police, uh, director of public safety, um, we don't know what lurks in the heart of every police officer under our commands across this nation. We don't, and, and nor do we fool ourselves thinking that we do. But what we do do is when we find those people that don't belong in law enforcement, we do our darndest to make sure they exit law enforcement. That's what police professionals do. Mm-hmm. Number two, uh, you know, we, we, we spoke about uh, you mentioned the, the I'm not sure, uh, someone mentioned the word militarization. Mm-hmm. Listen, I understand that, and I'm sensitive to it, but put yourself in an American law enforcement officer's situation today in 2016. Put yourself in a chief of police situation. And that chief of police at Dallas, I, I, I commend him. He, he's, he's demonstrated outstanding leadership, compassionate man, and he made some tough decisions. And every decision that we make in policing gets, you know, cut up, uh, criticized, and, 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 and an autopsy is conducted of the decision. But in 2016, here's, here's the challenge of my profession, to be the best that we can be from a community policing perspective. And in 1984, when I started as patrolman, I didn't even know what the word community policing was. That came along in the 90s. What is it? It's, well, and I'm going to talk to Dr. Lee about this in his research in a few minutes. My definition of community policing is old-fashioned policing, that, that you're, the best policing takes place outside of the police car interacting with the citizens. That's, that's what it is. It's, it's having that, that build-up public trust with the citizens you serve. But speaking to the militarization thing, from my perspective, do we need to be militarized as American law enforcement? In some respects, without question. When we respond to incidents like Orlando, uh, in California. You know, we're now tasked as a profession, again in 1984, something I never would have dreamed of, as we're the tip of the spear in the United States of America as homeland security in terms of terrorism, along with all of the other missions we have. Look at this incident in Dallas. You know, one of the things that, that is, is being examined, questioned, talked about is, you know, the deployment of the explosives with the robot. 
It was a tactical decision. I support it. Um, but, you know, 20 or 30 years ago, that wouldn't have been something we trained to. But now we have to train to it. So my profession has a lot of challenges. And I think when we step back and examine it, they do, uh, quite frankly, a wonderful job. And I'm not saying that mistakes have not been made for decades and decades. No question, there's been mistakes made. What I'm saying is my profession has always been prepared to evolve from those mistakes. And my profession has always also been prepared to lay down our lives for all citizens of this nation in every city, town, and village across America. And we have done that. And unfortunately, it's probably something we're going to continue to do. You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR News and all things regional. I'm Scott Lamar. Smart Talk is supported by Capital Blue Cross, providing health care coverage accepted by doctors and specialists in all 50 states. More information is available at capbluecross.com. Capital Blue Cross, live fearless. Smart Talk is also supported by the Pinnacle Health Cardiovascular Institute's team of cardiologists, surgeons, nurses, physicians' assistants, and rehabilitation specialists, delivering a broad range of traditional and highly specialized procedures. Welcome back to a special Smart Talk. We're examining the relationship between police, the black community, where we are as a nation. And I know that's a big question. And I just mentioned to our panel that uh, an hour is not enough time to uh, discuss a, a huge issue. And uh, it probably does warrant a gathering of uh, the community at, at, at some point. I know it's happening throughout the country but here in, in central Pennsylvania as well. Our guest today, Ophelia Chambliss, the first vice president of the York NAACP, Reverend Nathaniel Gadsden, community impact manager for the United Way of the Capital Region, Dr. Jonathan Lee, an assistant professor of criminal justice at Penn State Harrisburg, Rob Martins, the director of public safety for Susquehanna Township in Dolphin County, and Dr. Rita Shaw's assistant professor of sociology at Elizabethtown College. Now, we will be taking some phone calls. We will be taking some phone calls. Be patient because we're getting a lot of calls. And with the limited amount of time that we have, we will try to get to as many as we can. You're listening to the top stories of 2016 on Smart Talk. Today's program is pre-recorded, so please don't call or email. The number to call, you could also send an email to smarttalk at WITF.org or leave a question or comment on WITF's Facebook page. Uh, Let's talk a little bit about... Here's the real broad question. Uh, Dr. Shaw, as a sociology professor, I'm sure you've studied this over and over. But the big question, how did we get to this point as as a nation? You know, Chief Martin said he doesn't think, and President Obama said, he doesn't think the nation is as divided as what the media reports and everyone is talking, uh, you know, that rhetoric. What do you find? I don't think we're as divided as, as the rhetoric suggests either, I do think what we tend to forget and that we need to really focus on is the history. So we know historically study after study after study has shown us black and brown individuals, particularly black individuals, have been criminalized in this country simply for being. And we can point to politicians. We can point to sociologists, quite frankly. We can point to criminologists, academia, the media, you name it, any aspect of society is complicit in this. When you have the assumption that simply being in a black body or a brown body makes you inherently criminal, that drives policy. 
whether we realize it or not, and I, I fully recognize the police departments have come a long way in addressing these issues, but this has been institutionalized so that things like quotas seem to be race neutral, but in practice they end up not being because of assumptions of who is the criminal. Things like what areas do we police? We assume that crime is highest in minority poor neighborhoods. Is that because we're there more or because they're actually committing more crime? It's hard to parse that out when we know historically practices have continued given the background, right? We know, for instance, that white and Hispanic individuals use drugs at the same rate, if not more, than blacks. But guess who's in prison? Guess who gets arrested? Guess who gets charged? Black individuals. That's not about who's committing crime and who isn't. That's about who do we assume is committing crime? Who are we going after? What neighborhoods are we in? You have black neighborhoods that are both over-criminalized and under-criminalized. They are gone after for minor things like taillights with the Philando Castile case. And then when there are major issues, they don't trust the police. They don't call them. Right. And so while there are bad individuals, unfortunately, the very, very, very good individuals in policing are often hampered by policies that they have no control of. And that we as a nation really need to start talking about how is our history impacting our policies, the practices of policing, and then how do we then move forward beyond that so that our policing departments can move forward as they have been historically and adjusting as they have been historically. Chief Martin, I feel like I have to give you an opportunity to uh, discuss that. Well, I, I, I thank the doctor for, for recognizing we've evolved and come a long way. Uh, and, and I think that uh, more study and, and what you'll see is is more things from a training perspective are going to come our way from police leadership as well as from elected officials. Mm-hmm. You know, because we've got to talk about elected officials in terms of uh, missions set forth and given to American law enforcement. And let's just talk about one that, that, that comes up in these conversations, the, the so-called war on drugs. Mm-hmm. You know, that was, that was put upon us, uh, and we did our job. We did our mission. We, we did what we were tasked to do. And... Uh, you know, now we can sit here in 2016 and say, well, did some of those things uh, lead to higher incarceration rates? Without question, uh, the facts are there. And should a lot of those things been uh, approached from the perspective of treatment and not enforcement? Without question. Which it is today for the yes. most part. Yeah. Yes. So, you know, and, and I think that you'll find most of my profession agreeing with all that. Right. So, but some of the course corrections do need to come from on high in terms of uh, legislative efforts and changes in training police academies. And I think we're prepared to do that. And I think you're going to see it. And I would I, argue acad- academia also needs to play a role in in working more with police and politicians on yes. how to best address these policies. Yes. Uh, Reverend Gaston, you said in your, uh, I'm not going to be the one who said you've been around for a long time. You said it <laughs> earlier in our conversation. It's been a while. <laughs> <laughs> but when we talk about a nation divided, a mm-hmm. nation polarized, I mean, politically, we're polarized. Mm-hmm. I mean, you look at the Congress, the United oh, yeah. States, mm-hmm. uh, even the legislature in Pennsylvania for mm-hmm. the for very often. Yeah. We do have a lot of heated political rhetoric. Mm-hmm. What about what about along racial lines, though? Yeah, I mean, it's clearly there, but I think it's uh, not as um, – and I agree with, you know, both uh, the chief and, and doctor here that it's not as bad as it's being portrayed. But it is um, – it's it's uh, for the news media uh, sexy, 
And so they only tell about the, the bad, you know. One of the things I've said a long time ago, and I said at the beginning of this, I'm a huge supporter of the police. I grew up in Police Athletic League, uh, PAL. Uh, most of the men in my life that were my mentors, uh, you know, uh, they were people who were police officers or associated with the police in some way. So no way, shape, or form have I ever seen myself separated from that. I'll, you know, I always uh, really revered them. I, I just hate the fact, though, that when something happens that a police officer does, that there doesn't seem to be accountability. So I'm always angered by that. On the other hand, the same thing with uh, race relations. I know that there's a lot of bad stuff out there. But quite frankly, the world that I walk in, which is a world that, you know, sees, um, you know, the good and the bad on all levels, um, I see people of all races and, and all ethnic backgrounds and cultural understandings uh, coming together on many levels uh, and doing great things together, you know, and not having people walking down the street screaming and hollering each other and shooting each other. That's not the world that I see. Is there racism? Oh, you know it is. And it, it's uh, played out in many different ways. But are the people of goodwill? Most of the people in this country are people who love, people who build, people who cherish what uh, America's all about. But let us not fool ourselves and think that for the African-American, for the African, when we first came here, we were not equal. And so we've been playing catch up for a long, long time. And to suggest that we all came together under this banner of love and reconciliation and everything, that just wasn't the truth from the beginning. So we already know that. So having known that and seeing, you know, the vestiges of that still existing, I see more Confederate flags on cars than I've ever seen in my life now. Mm -hmm. You know, all over America, all over Pennsylvania, you're seeing that. We just had a wonderful speaker at our writer's workshop who just wrote a book about uh, Hazleton, Pennsylvania. He's from Hazleton. He's a Ph.D. And uh, he did a marvelous book. And I'm trying to think of the name of it right now. But please get this book because it kind of encapsulates what we're all talking about here, how immigration has turned Hazleton upside down. Yeah. People up there are saying, you know, we don't want them here. Who's, who's they? And it's vicious. Uh, does that mean everybody in Hazleton is a racist? No, it doesn't mean that. But it does mean that there's a faction, there's some people, there's a segment that clearly wants to hold on to that old notion that there is them against us. We have to be real careful about that. So, no, the truth is always in, in, in the truth. I mean, the truth is that we are a nation that love when we come together. But there's also the truth that there are a lot of factions and pockets there that if we ignore, they can start doing some serious damage and take us back to a time we don't want to go back to. Right. Yeah. You know? And I agree. We're not as divided as the media would have us believe. Right. Um, uh, one of the courses I teach is the media discourse analysis, and we don't have enough smart media consumers to realize mm -hmm. that there is a difference. But we do have a lot of extremes right now. Yes. Mm -hmm. uh, like you said, I've seen more Confederate flags than I've ever seen before. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And then there are some other extremes, you know, even on the, on the black side. So we just mm -hmm. have a lot more extremes. That's true. Mm -hmm. uh, Dr. Lee, you've researched many of the topics that uh, we're, mm -hmm. we're discussing here today. Let's get into what works. What doesn't work? Uh, the research that you've done between uh, po public and uh, police relations, what did you find? Well, basically, uh, community-oriented policing has been uh, implemented in the United States for a long time, and I think uh, yeah, it speaks to the uh, uh, all of these you know, incidents in a way that uh, we need to uh, you know, uh, open dialogue to uh, develop mutual respect and mutual conversation about the um, uh, public and police relations. I think um, uh, all too often I, th I see a lot of uh, conversation, not really in the conversation by definition, in a way that uh, the public speaks to uh, uh, police about you know what they feel and how they feel, but then the police do not really speak up you know what they think about the other uh, society and you know how tough and stressful their uh, enforcement and, and their business is. Uh, I think uh, yeah we need the public needs to understand in you know, uh, the police decision making process and um, 
you know, uh, what police officers go through every time they knock on the door and every time they stop the vehicle. But at the same time, police need to understand that you know, uh, uh, in the 21st century policing, it's very important for them to secure legitimacy uh, through the uh, uh, gaining confidence in the police from the public. So community-oriented policing is actually designed to, uh, to uh, build trust between the police and the public. But it, how do you do that? It's a philosophy that promotes community partnership and uh, problem-serving ta- tactics. Um, how do we do that? Uh, well, in a probably the simplest version of it, Chief Martin can probably uh, uh, speak to that. Uh, police officers are, are encouraged to uh, go out on the street uh, on foot and talk to the neighbors and uh, try to understand uh, what they're going through in a non-service interaction. Um, so uh, in the, uh, in the, in the academia, uh, there has been a lot of research on outputs of community-oriented policing. But the problem is we don't really know the process of community policing. And what I mean by that is a lot of research has been done, uh, and uh, they look at the uh, community-oriented policing outputs by looking at the number of police officers who are engaging in community-oriented policing or by the presence of departmental uh, regulation or policy about community policing. But we don't really know how well that's implemented. And the way I see it, and and that's how I incorporated the concept of social distance into our research, Uh, what I uh, looked at is we actually surveyed community college uh, students, and then uh, we asked them about, do you know any police officer by his or her first name? Do you feel comfortable talking with that police officer? And and that's also a question. So uh, the higher level of uh, social distance would indicate uh, low familiarity and low interaction. So social distance is a negative concept. So we looked at it, and then uh, uh, basically our, uh, our focus was on confidence in the police uh, that actually uh, translates into uh, legitimacy or satisfaction with the police, attitude to the police. So we asked them these questions along with all other determinants of confidence in the police, like... Uh, negative contact with the police, whether you were pulled over, whether you were arrested, and you know, regardless of the nature of that, and people feel really uh, disgruntled about uh, their contact with the police in general. And then we asked them about criminal victimization. And then we asked them about uh, media exposure to uh, you know, um, police misconduct. So uh, all things considered, we found that social distance has a mediating effect me on, on the relationship between race and confidence in the police. And let me put things into perspective. So before we put the uh, social distance as, a, as an element in the statistical analysis model, there was, there was a racial disparity, meaning that white respondents had higher confidence in the police. And we thought, okay, this is just repeating uh, and recurring you know, output. But then when we included social distance into the ma- model, we found that so the racial disparity was dismissed. What that means is, and all these other determinants held constant, meaning that at any given level of social distance, there is no difference between white and black. And and to put it differently, for both white and black, it's all about social distance, whether you know a police officer or not. See, but one of the questions I would have about that is logistically how that can work. I mean, Chief Martin, maybe you can explain this a little bit better. I mean, I hear about cities that are opening 
uh, like substations for the, mm-hmm. their, their police departments. And over the last week or so, we've heard about the police chiefs say that we need to have more police officers out on the street talking to the community. But in a large city, now maybe here in central Pennsylvania, the ratio between police officer and citizen uh, is a little bit smaller. But you go to a larger city like a Dallas, like a Philadelphia, like a New York, um, even though you may have thousands of police officers, you have millions of people. Mm-hmm. Is that realistic? Absolutely. I mean, can it be done? Yes. But, I mean, here's how we would – there's how we do break it down. Um, police officers – and when we talk about police officers, we're talking about the officers on patrol uh, by and large. Well, they have – in their 8, 10, 12-hour shift, they have time in that shift that's tasked with answering calls, writing reports, and then they have the – the available time. Mm-hmm. Well, that's where you strike towards community policing in the available time. So from a, from a police administra- administrator's perspective, we say in that available time, you know, we, we need to strive to be a community policing-oriented police department. Now, how do you do that? Well, you know, at the outset of this conversation, uh, Dr. Shea indicated that, you know, there's really no tracking of police use uh, of deadly force throughout the country over the past 40, 50 years? Well, in my profession, if it's not documented and it's not written and it's not tracked, it didn't happen. So I can only speak to my police department. We have two ongoing initiatives, actually three, that uh, require the officers to get out of the police car on that available time and interact with the public and document it. And then that documentation gets an incident number, and that's something that myself and the sergeants, lieutenants, uh, captains read, and we know that it's happening. So if someone walked in and said, uh, you know, Operation Honorable Endeavor, which is, which is the key program we have of getting out of the car in that shift, every shift, and interacting with the public, Chief, how many of you have done, you know, from January 1st to June 30th? I could print it out, and I think that you'll be shocked. There's probably hundreds and hundreds of incidents, if not thousands, that we did just in the first six months. So as an administrator, I know you have to make it something formalized, something that's documented, and something that can be tracked. All right, but let me just follow up on that, some, some pushback, if you will. Um, all of you have said to some degree that you don't think that the country is as divided or there is as much mistrust as uh, what you would see in the media. But and here's the but. Uh, if there is mistrust, if we have people in the African-American community or other minority communities who don't trust the police, and then we have an incident like Thursday night in Dallas where police have to be concerned for their safety, doesn't that breed more mistrust? Basically, what I'm saying is, you know, can we bring uh, people together to have a discussion, to get to know one another? If there is some, if th- that mistrust, that fear exists. It's already happening. I mean, I sat down and watched, uh, you know, CNN and all the other, you know, stations out there reporting. And already, even today, you know, there are planned uh, vigils. We had one today here in Harrisburg being planned at 12 noon at the uh, Martin Luther King, you know, City Government Center. We're going to have a prayer vigil. We're bringing people from all races and cultures coming together to say, you know, we don't roll like this. <laughs> you know, this does not represent us. So it's already happening. You know, you'll see the people. But will they get the coverage? 
that we get from the tragedy? And that's the question. We'll play that tragedy over and over. We'll dissect it. We'll this and that. But when people of goodwill are doing good things, we don't get the same coverage. So the question isn't so much whether or not it exists, whether or not we had a cooperation of people trying to, you know, bridge the divide and, and do the understanding. But it needs to get as much coverage as a tragedy. But guess what? That doesn't sell as much. Well, and that's just a sad reality. And also, well, I mean, yes, there have been the prayer vigils around the country. And, and dialogue sessions, too. But that's in a, in a public gathering. Mm-hmm. The one-on-one conversation between a young African-American person mm-hmm. and a police officer. Happens all the time. Okay, but then why does this mistrust still exist? Because you have incidents where people are not held accountable. Right, there's a historical I, record uh, for, for that lack of right, mistrust. Right. Right. And I think, uh, yeah, like I said, uh, I think there's a lack of understanding, a mutual understanding. Uh, and the police officers, they need to understand uh, the importance of legitimacy and confidence in the police because uh, uh, if you look at the you know the modern policing administration, you know uh, police is is the most visible government agency, meaning that it's the most representative government agency, uh, you know across all, all levels of uh, federal and state government. Meaning that, uh, and th- we actually see a high correlation between public confidence in the police and confidence in the government. So you know police needs to really understand that they, they cannot perform their business without uh, gaining support. And, and cooperation from the police, uh, from the public. And then if you look at the end of police investigation and the police operations, it starts with a tip and, and corporate service from the public, and then it ends with tips and cooperation from the public. So police officers need to really understand that it's, it's imperative that they secure you know, public support. But at the same time, public needs to understand that you know what police officers go through, the decision-making process. If you look at the uh, fabric of our society, and a structure of our society, there's no consensus. Law, by nature, is a consensus, but you know we don't even know all laws. And and uh, and honestly, uh, if you look at the end between generation, between neighborhoods, between race, between income levels, are we sure there's a consensus? Uh, you know, for instance, marijuana smoking is a crime, but in one neighborhood where there's a violent crime happening every day. Marijuana smoking may not be considered a, a violent crime or, or a serious crime that needs uh, immediate attention. But if you uh, drive just about five minutes and, and, and it can take you a different neighborhood where you know, people would call 911 just for a stop sign violation. So are we sure there's a consensus? And if you look at the police officer's standpoint, they are the best agents to understand what's acceptable and what's not acceptable in that jurisdiction. Mm-hmm. Dr. Shaw. And we can't expect that these problems are going to be solved overnight, right? I mean, it's a process. You have to go into these communities and build those relationships. Problem is we don't want to take the time or spend the money to do that because it does take time and it does take money. We could, for instance, be implementing restorative justice practices in many communities where the police and this community sit down with a neutral mediator to have these conversations that Dr. Lee is talking about, about what are the concerns of the community, help the community better understand what the police go through on a daily basis, help the police understand what are the actual concerns of the community members. And from there, you can start to build the trust and build the conversations so that you can then do community mm-hmm. policing practices. The other thing though, that I I actually think we're in a position to grow that trust because now that communities who have never had these issues before are starting to recognize what's happening in in minority and lower-income communities, 
you have other communities who are finally realizing why that mistrust exists in the first place. We can start to have those larger national conversations about how do we as a society, not just policing, because they're, they, they're not isolated, right? They don't exist in a vacuum. How do we as a society say we as a whole need to get this trust together? And now you have communities that can work across the spectrum to try to come up with solutions. And I think that mistrust and that that uh, reputation is goes across different communities. Um, this past weekend, I was at an Eid celebration uh, as a, a Muslim service as a non-Muslim observer. And as we were there and they were praying, two police cars pulled into the parking lot and everyone just kind of stopped and they're all looking and, and they all became extremely paranoid the way if we were a group of black individuals became very paranoid because they were thinking, why are they here? What are they doing? I mean, there's this automatic fear and again, this automatic mistrust. And they were there because someone locked their keys in a car but it was this automatic sense of, oh, my God, the police are here. You know, mm-hmm. so something's wrong. I want to take some phone calls in just a, a, a few minutes. You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR News and all things regional. I'm Scott Lamar. Welcome back to Smart Talk. We only have a few minutes left. I'm going to try to get a couple phone calls in. Also, I want to remind you that we'll have a Facebook Live uh, chat uh, after the program, just a few minutes after uh, 10 this morning. So go to WITF's Facebook page for that. Let's go to Mary in Camp Hill. Mary, you're on the air. Thanks for waiting. Um, yes. Uh, I think that when our leaders uh, pick out different ethnicities, when they say Mexicans these are leaders. This is a potential res- a presidential candidate. Says things like uh, Mexicans are rapists and murderers. When we have public officials, Medcalf, who's divisive, when you create those situations, you create hate. And it's easy to start attacking each other. Our leaders are mostly responsible, as far as I'm concerned, um, for what's happening. In this nation. Thank, Thank you very you. much for your call. Uh, anyone want to, I mean, you, Chief Martin, you kind of touched on this about uh, needing some political leadership uh, in, a, in a situation like this. Uh, everyone wants to point to leadership, but uh, to our elected officials. But when we get back to the rhetoric that we do have in this country, this presidential election has been like any other. Hmm. Does it add? Does it contribute? It gives permission. It gives permission to people who might have had certain thoughts to say these things out loud now because it's being said in a public forum. And it continues the stereotypes that we have had for decades, for centuries, Mm -hmm. that we've never really confronted. And it, as you said, gives permission to continue those stereotypes and permission to avoid confronting that history and how we change that. And I do believe that the media has to take responsibility, and we as a people take responsibility. When Donald Trump made inflammatory statements, we got... um, you know, enamored with that. It was reported over and over and over. I mean, it's just been too much Trump all the time. And why? Because he was just saying things that made you say, what? Wow. And people got uh, excited about that. And it just seems to legitimize him. And it, it made us all angry. And you couldn't get enough of him. And it's like enough is enough. But we have to take responsibility for his rise. Not that he was the best candidate on that stage at any time. Because, yeah, people there that were serious politicians who were trying to do serious work. Right, it was entertaining. They were in, he was entertaining. Well, and I mean, he got reported on and then they kept giving him the microphone we had to take responsibility for that yeah but uh, i think i agree with the uh the statement that political leaders need to uh, need to be more responsible in that way but then at the same time i'm concerned about the uh, the mindset uh, in the public that probably uh, that these uh in opinions 
might have been uh, lurking in their minds, mm-hmm. and then uh, they just you know uh, you know gave away to uh, you know um, open dialogue simply because you know somebody you know who is a you know mm-hmm. political figure uh, speaked up about it. Uh, um, I think uh, we need to you know, really have a, uh, a groundwork done before we actually you know, charge some political figures to uh, be more responsible about their comments. Mm. All right, let's take another phone call from Justine in Lancaster. Justine, you're on the air. Yes, hello? Hi, you're on the air. Go ahead. Don't listen to your radio. Hello? Yes, go right ahead. Hello? Okay, I don't think uh, Justine can hear us for some reason, but uh, one of the things that she she went to, I'll just kind of... Uh, I have some notes here. She wanted to present a question to Dr. Shaw. Uh, she said she locked herself out of the house on Saturday and asked the police to help them br- her break in. They were very cordial, but they did ask for her ID. Feels that if she was black, they wouldn't have been as cordial. That's a lot of speculation there, but... It's a lot of speculation. On the other hand, we unfortunately do have data that suggests that those who are black or brown, but especially black, are criminalized and the assumption is you're a criminal. And so the responsible policing, and in this case, the police officer acted responsibly, asked for ID, double-checked that was actually her her residence, that she lived there, and then helped her figure out how to get into her home. That should be the case across the board, though, mm-hmm. right? So when we're talking about how do we make sure that these stereotypes don't become institutionalized or how we get them out of the institution – Look at what the reasonable actions are, because there are countless examples of reasonable actions every single day. And how do we make sure that we're applying them evenly and equally? Right. So, for instance, when we say we want individuals of various different races to be treated equally, we don't mean, well, every white person, every black person who uses a crime should be locked up for 15 years. Is that reasonable? Not really, because it's costing us millions, billions, potentially trillions of dollars. But we do know that there are cases where white individuals have gotten off. I mean, the crack cocaine disparity is the prime example of this, have gotten off for the exact same crime way easier than black individuals have. And so maybe we should say, well, if that's reasonable for that person, why isn't it reasonable for the other person as well? Um, Yeah, so I, I mean, I would just say, yes. Is there a chance Yes, the data suggests yes, there's a chance. That doesn't mean it has to be that way. And it, quite frankly, shouldn't be that way. And I know several police officers and departments who would 100% agree with that. We only have about two minutes left. And uh, I don't know how much we accomplished today, but I, I, I enjoyed the conversation. And I hope that this kind of conversation is occurring across the country. Uh, but Chief Martin and uh, Reverend Gaston, I'm going to kind of, you kind of started this off, but what has to happen to improve this situation? And if I can, like 45 seconds, Chief. Well, first, I think the first thing needs to happen is uh, that we continue to communicate, uh, that we continue to, to strive to understand each other, that my profession, and it will, uh, will continue to inject into uh, its training program and its, its uh, accreditation programs things that are going to make us better. Uh, and and certainly more transparent. Having said that, I I just want to leave everyone with this. There are well over, and I don't know the exact number, well over 600,000 police officers across this nation. And we come together, and and the media reports on a few incidents that happen maybe in a year's time that that certainly need examination and, and due process. But 
it's important for all of us to realize that the vast majority of police officers are outstanding men and women who go and do their duty every day with the risk that they face. Reverend Gaston, about 40 seconds. I agree with uh, Chief Martin that, uh, you know, the out the overwhelming number of police officers are outstanding. They do what they're supposed to do. And I say the same thing about most citizens. And I would say that uh, what we have to do is we have to uh, examine the use of deadly force by those persons who are in charge of protecting and serving us because that's the central issue. Uh, too many people are still dying uh, needlessly, and that's why we're sitting here. If this was something where someone had really you know, committed a crime and they were obviously trying to kill people, but this is not the case. And, you know, you know, people being stopped because the taillight's broken or whatever the issue might have been, it just doesn't make sense. So we have to be uh, more, um, you know, serious about what we're trying to do in terms of use of deadly force. You've been listening to the top stories of 2016 on Smart Talk. I'm Scott Lamar.